Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. This sermon was recorded during our Sunday morning gathering in West Boise. Everything we do is to help you connect with God, find real community, and discover your purpose. Follow us online at redemptionboise.org or on Instagram at redemptionboise. All right, let's do this thing. I'm just going to play with some music in the background. It makes it feel more dramatic that way. Anyways. All right. Your face is too far away. Okay. All right. There we go. All right. We got, we're trying a new thing out today. So I'm going to have the slides on my iPad up here. And uh, that way nobody has to be at the tech booth. So it should, should make it a little simpler. Free up some people on Sundays. All right, welcome. Well, first thing I wanted to say is that I uh, wanted to welcome Angie and Brian Mers, who are here this morning. You can wave. Um, Brian is, uh, he has been the associate pastor at the Summit Church for 28 years, so a long time. And this, this morning, their church is voting on whether they like him or not. They just do that periodically. No, they're, they've had a transition. <laughs> Listen, this is not a democracy. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, but Brian is, uh, is candidating as the senior pastor there after many of you have met uh, Jim and Judy Steiner who have been around um, over the last year a couple of times. They're having a transition. And in fact, uh, the Summit Church has a significant part in my spiritual journey because it's where both of my folks and their families really connected with God in a significant way as Second Baptist back in the day. So... Well, uh, I actually want to take a moment and just pray for you guys since you're here. Is that all right? Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord God, you have been at work from the beginning, drawing people to yourself. Your spirit's been moving throughout the earth, bringing, um, hopefully, in, in many people, a desire to follow you. Your spirit has been bringing conviction about judgment and sin. And you have been knocking on the doors of many people's hearts. And your plan is to empower your church by your spirit to walk as communities being faithful witnesses to your goodness in our communities. And Lord God, the Summit Church and Second Baptist have been doing that for many, many years. They've been uh, an important part of many people's faith journeys. And we pray at this crucial moment of transition that your hand is directing their congregation. We pray as they vote to bring Brian in as the senior pastor that it's, a, it's an important moment both for him and for them to reaffirm the vision and mission that you've called them to. I pray, God, that they would sense your direction and your pleasure in their service and that they'd take this next season and, and lean into your calling and be deeply, deeply tied to you, the vine, the life giver. Lord God, may they sense your, um, your comfort and your presence as they wait to hear and also give them lots of vision as they prepare for this next season. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Glad you guys could be with us today. Well, welcome. Um, it's, a, it's a light group since all of the ladies are gone. Today we are going to be in John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And... Uh, yeah, it is. We've been going through the Bible. We are finally to the Gospels the last few weeks, and we've been talking about the way of Jesus and what he shows us about what it looks like to walk in 
the way of Jesus, to know God and to understand his kingdom and then to participate in it. And so we've been looking at primarily some of the teachings of Jesus and less of the works of Jesus. Um, but many of you have been going through the reading plan alongside of us, and that reading plan has been helping you kind of get a fuller picture. Obviously, we're not going to touch on every chapter of the Bible on Sunday mornings, these 52 weeks. We've been taking just little snippets and pulling out some important themes along the way. And today we're going to be looking at one of Jesus's longest private teachings. So we, last two weeks ago, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, his longest public teaching that we have written down for us. And today we're going to be in his farewell discourse, is what it's called, at the end of John. And it's Jesus with his disciples in the upper room the week of his crucifixion. And what we're going to be looking at is that Jesus, he's, he's preparing his disciples. He's preparing them so that they know what to expect and they know what to do next when Friday happens. And if you've read this, you know that um, right before chapter 14, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. He tells them that he has to go away. And then he predicts that they're all going to deny him, which had to be really unsettling for the disciples. As they're entering in, they're thinking they've just gone through Palm Sunday. They're ready for the coronation of the king. They're ready for the revolution to take place. And Jesus says, actually, you guys really misunderstood this whole thing. Not only am I going to die and I'm going to go away, but you guys are going to betray me. And in their hearts, they're like, Lord, we've come all this way. We've walked through so many things with you. We've seen the miracles. We've seen you at work. How could we possibly betray you? And so this, this par- portion in chapter 14 is Jesus trying to trying to give them, gird up their loins, give them the heart that they need, the courage that they need to press on. And I also think it's an important word for us today because many of us are in the same spot as the disciples. We've walked with God for a while. We've learned some of the things that he's been teaching us. And we also have seen some of the brokenness in our own lives. We've started to see um, in the people's lives around us that the faith that we've received doesn't always play out in a straight line to sanctification and to Christ-likeness. Um, we get discouraged. We get downtrodden. We, we, we look at our world and we look at our political sphere and we say, God, help us all. It just feels like there's so much brokenness. And we need to have our hearts taken care of. We need to have our hearts comforted by Jesus. So these are the words of Christ in John 14, verse 1. Let's see if I can, I think there's a way that I can read it. Oh, my God. Okay. Here we go. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, when I was uh, nine years old, I was a a little bit of a worry wart as a kid, and so my mom printed this out and put it on my wall and told me to memorize this passage um, because she thought that if I was worried about death, then if I knew that um, there was going to be some prepared place for me and that I would have a heaven that I could enter into with Jesus, that I wouldn't be so worried about dying. And it, maybe it helped a little bit, but like this is the passage that she gave me to kind of just assuage my soul. But what's happening here is something different. And maybe something you've never seen before, but this is 
clearly marriage language. Did you know that? This is about marriage. In the Jewish system particularly, what, Jesus, what the groom would do is he would approach the father of the bride and he would say, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And he'd say, do you have a house? And if he said no, he's, the father would say what? Well, go build a house and then come back. And it would normally be on either the father-in-law's estate, they would have an addition, and he would go to work building an addition on the house so there'd be room for this family, or he'd go back to his own family and build on to their family. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I know you're worried. And they, they don't realize it, but Jesus is in, in, in this betrothal with the church, but it hasn't come to fruition through the death and resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying is that I have to go to prepare a home for you. I have to go get ready for you. And you're worried now, but what you don't realize is that something's going to happen here that's going to make everything the way it was meant to be. He's got to leave. He's got to go home to prepare. And that preparation is literally his death on the cross is the bride price that he pays for his bride to then join his family. That's the, that's the imagery that's going on here. So Jesus is saying, don't be worried. Trust God. Trust me. In my Father's house, there are so many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And so I'm going to go, and I'm going to make sure that those rooms are ready for you. I'm going to go add on to the tent of my Father's house so that there's room for everybody who wants to be a part of his family. The disciples see Jesus' death as a distressing turn, when in reality, it is Jesus' death that will turn out to be his salvation. And so we're going to walk through how Jesus then prepares it. So verse 3. Oh. Okay, verse 3 says, The disciples see Jesus' Oh, sorry, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. They're worried that he's going to go away and that he's not coming back. But Jesus is saying, my love has compelled me to make this promise to you. I'm engaged to my bride, the church, and I'm going to go prepare a home to bring you into. And there's no way that I wouldn't come to bring you to myself. I love you too much. He loved us, in fact, so much that he was willing to pay any price that the Father demanded of him. He would go and give everything he had to bring his bride home to him, including humiliation, suffering, pain, torment, humiliation in every way possible, and ultimately, to the point of death, he would give his life. We need a home with God. We are homeless. We are sojourners. We're in exile. This is where we're at in the story of the people of God is that we are in exile right now. We have been waiting and hoping that we're going to find a home with God, that we're going to make a home with God, but we're not there yet. We're in exile, and so the only way to get to this home is through this relationship with Jesus. Jesus makes a home for us with the Father. He's the only one who can go make a home with the Father. He's the only one who can set out a path that we're going to follow to the Father. And then we see in verse 4, 
And you, my disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, (laughs) we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I can hear the tone of Jesus' voice here. Does it, does it breathe? Can you just sense Jesus' irritation with Thomas here? I, I sense it. I would be frustrated. Um, he's, he's literally been demonstrating to them over and over and over and over and over again through everything he does, one simple reality. What's that big teaching? What is the gospel teaching that Jesus has been trying to show them the whole way? That he is Yahweh. This is the good news, is that Jesus is the Lord, the God on high, the creator who has come to make his home with us. And this is the point that John has been trying to make throughout this whole gospel. We start in in John chapter 1, where it says, and God came and made his home among us. So Jesus has been showing them through his miracles. Um, he, He has these miracles where he demonstrates that he has power over the created order where he can take water and he can fast forward the process of photosynthesis and all the work that it takes to make a vine into a grape and a grape into wine, and he can just bring it to life immediately. He is and has power over all of creation because he is Yahweh. He is co-equal with the Father in all things. He's been showing them that he has power over their bodies to give life, to restore life to create life out of death. He's the only one who's ever had these powers that has ever come along. He's showing them that he also is the only one who has authority to tell you what the law means and how to live in the way of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the way. He's going to show us an an example, a demonstration of what it's like to be a kingdom person, and he's going to show us the way with his life. And so the way to the Father is the way of Jesus, which goes through Good Friday and the separation of Saturday and then the resurrection of Sunday. Jesus is the way because he's the one who has demonstrated that the way to the Father is through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. That he is the truth. He's the only one who can really tell us who God is. When Jesus comes and we have Emmanuel, God, with us, we're seeing the Father for the first time in, in his fullness and, and with great clarity. Everything that Jesus is is true of the Father. So for the first time in the life and the teachings of Jesus, we're finally getting what God really wants and what God is really doing. God is graciously showing us who he is. We also see that Jesus is the lawgiver, and he's the only one who can tell us how to live out the law with authority. And he's also the law interpreter, where he can tell us what it looks like to follow the law in the way of the kingdom, not in a human kind of way. And we can also see that Jesus has been trying to demonstrate to his disciples that he is the life, that he brings life as the creator, that he redeems life as the redeemer, that he is the firstborn of this new creation that is coming. Jesus is the only one who has shown that he has the power to give 
and life. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way and the truth and life, Jesus is saying is that where else are you going to go? I'm the only one who showed you. I'm the only one who demonstrated to you that I have the way to the Father, that I am with the Father, that I can show you who the Father is. I am everything that you will need to be. This was meant to be deeply comforting words for his disciples. When they heard it, they were supposed to say, finally, we get who the Father is. Finally, we've seen who the Father is. But that's, that's not what happens. Verse 7, it says this. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And then Philip, from the back, goes, Hey, Lord, uh, show us the Father, and, and it's enough for it. Just, we're just asking for you to show us who the Father is. I can't imagine that Jesus didn't exasperatedly go, oh, like, like I, with my one-year-old, he, he does not listen to me at all, at all. And uh, I'll tell him to do something, and he will not do it. And I'll tell him again, I'll not do it. And then I'll yell at him, and he'll look at me with his head cocked and still not do it. And then, I, like, what am I supposed to do at that point other than just throw up my hands and say, he's never going to get it. Philip says to him, show us the Father, and that would be enough, Lord. And Jesus has much more patience than me. He says to him, have I been with you so long and, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Sorry. Did you get? Oh, there we go. We missed the second part of the slide. So Jesus is saying, hey, no, really, I'm not joking. Let's go through it one more time. Okay. So if you want to see the Father, you've seen the Father. It's me. I just imagine Jesus looks around in disbelief like, is anyone really listening to me? Am I invisible? If you're looking for Yahweh, this heavenly Father, you've found him. Jesus is everything that God the Father is. If you want to see what God does, what he feels, what is true, what he values, everything that Jesus does, the Father does too. Theologians call this the, the economic trinity, where basically what, what they're saying is that Everything that the Trinity does, it always works together as one. There is nothing that the Son does that the Father does not do. There's nothing that the Spirit does that the Son does not do. They are always working as one. Okay? And what Jesus is saying is that you guys really don't get it, but here's the thing. I am the Father. He has to, he has to get as clear as he can with them where they, they know that the Father is this this being that's above all things, this being that is spiritual and is beyond creation and beyond their understanding. They know that the Father is the great I am, that Yahweh literally means I am. I am the self-sustaining one. I am the one who was not created, who was not begotten. I am. And what Jesus is saying is something that would even have been difficult for the disciples to hear. When the disciples heard Jesus say, no, 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 you don't get it. The Father and I are one. 
you had to imagine just like these little brains were just popping in the room with like being overwhelmed with this new information that Jesus has been trying to get them to the whole time, trying to get them to, that he is one with the Father. And ultimately, this teaching is why Jesus is killed. He's not killed because the Jews just really didn't like him. He's killed because he said something that if it's true, it changes everything about Judaism. And if it's not true, Jesus should be killed. Okay? You get that? So if Jesus is saying, I am co-equal with the Father, Yahweh, and it's true, then he has the right to change the direction of all of the teachings of Judaism to help them understand who the Father really is and to make a new way forward for Judaism to participate in this kingdom that's coming. But if he's not really Yahweh, if it's not really true, then they should immediately take him outside, bring him before a tribunal, the elders of the Sanhedrin, and say, hey, this guy said he was equal to Yahweh. He should die. And I imagine that the disciples felt probably a lot of turmoil. Like if, if they knew their, their, their Bible, their Tanakh at all, they would have either been really excited or really terrified or really confused. I'm sure that they had a sense that Jesus was one with the Father. They had seen over and over again that he had demonstrated that he had this spiritual power that they had not seen in anyone else. They had seen this, this way that he taught with authority where he understood the scriptures better and different than anybody who had ever come along. They had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead just a week before. And so you imagine the disciples are sitting there going, all right, I think it might be true, but if it is true, what does that mean? Or they're saying, I'm not sure it's true. Let's see how this plays out. Or in the case of Judas, what I think happened is he heard Jesus say this, and it was one bit too far. I think that this is the reason that Judas conspired with the, the officials of the court. He thought he was doing the right thing. He had never really believed and understood who Jesus was. And so when Jesus made this final step into saying he's co-equal with the Father, Judas couldn't handle it. And I, I know that many of you have heard uh, this before, but what in mere Christianity and in many other teachings, we hear a guy like C.S. Lewis say that there's only three ways that you can take this teaching of Jesus. Either it's true, and he's the Lord of the universe, and everything about our lives should be shaped around him because he is the ruler of all things. Or he's just a flat-out liar, manipulator, con man who's trying to build a following so that he can get rich and famous and powerful. That didn't work out, so it's hard to take the liar piece because he just wasn't really good at it, obviously. Or the third piece is he's a lunatic, and uh, what C.S. Lewis says is that it's, it's basically on par with somebody saying, I am an eggplant. That's how crazy it is for Jesus to say, I am Yahweh, if it's not true. And so all of us kind of have to approach this and say, what are we going to do with this? There's no halvesies. There's, there's no way to take Jesus and say, oh, he was a nice teacher. He was a good guy who taught some really interesting things, and we should take some of the good stuff that Jesus taught and use it to fulfill our desires to make ourselves, um, you know, 
to, to acquire self-mastery. We should use Jesus to give us what we want in this world. Most of the world thinks, thinks that about Jesus. He's a nice guy. He had some good teachings. He was obviously connected with God in a deep way. And so just like some of the other religious leaders along the way, we should take some good things from him and leave the rest. But with Jesus, you don't have that option. Either he is the Lord of the universe and co-equal with God the Father who created all things, or you shouldn't pay attention to him at all because he's a lunatic or a liar and a con man. And so the invitation is, are you going to lean in? Are you going to be like Philip and Thomas who just don't get it, who are just sitting on the edges going, what's he talking about? Like they, you know how like you're sitting in class and you miss the first half of like a sentence and then you start paying attention halfway through and you're like, I wished I had started listening to that sentence earlier. And you lean over and the guy next to you is drumming on his, on his fingers and not listening. And the guy on the side of you has his AirPod in and he's listening to ESPN. And you're like, crap you know like that's uh, Thomas and Philip are basically confused because they're not really paying attention okay you've got Judas who was one step too far and he couldn't accept the lordship of Jesus and then you had Peter who deeply wanted it Peter who wanted to put his faith in the father and not deny Jesus and not deny his lordship he 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 saw it he believed it and he wanted to see that it was true It was probably the first time in any of their lives where they had thought somebody could possibly be Yahweh. And here's Jesus saying, no, focus in. I want to tell Theo, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. I am one with the Father. I'm not saying that, to be clear, okay? That's what Jesus said. But Jesus, he's saying, focus in. I want to be clear. I am one with the Father. So what are you going to do with that? Let's go to verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So um, we don't have to just take these guys at their word. What we, can, what we can do is we can look at the evidence and say, okay, what we have from 1 Corinthians is there was 500 people who saw Jesus alive after his death and resurrection. So there's this whole host of people who were willing to swear an oath saying that Jesus died and rose again and they saw him in the flesh. So there's like really good evidence that it's probably true. We've got the disciples who spent the rest of their lives, all 11 of them spent the rest of their lives telling the world that this Jesus is Yahweh. He is Lord of all creation. He is the king who's come to set things right and that you should put your faith in him because he rose from the dead. I wouldn't say those things if they weren't true. I don't think 11 people would die for a lie. I think we're, we're seeing now in our political system, just like with Watergate, very few people will die for a lie. Very few people will have their names besmirched for a lie. Very few people will be loyal to the end for a lie, but for the truth for a transformational truth, what we see is that people will lean in and do anything to declare the reality that they have seen. They don't waver on the witness stand. They don't take back their depositions. They don't ever perjure themselves because they know what they know and they've seen what they've seen and they've given their lives for it. Believe because you don't have 
Like, there's no counter evidence. There's no reason not to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I've, I've researched, I've looked, I've, I've, I've read the articles, I've looked at the manuscripts, I spent a better part of a year looking at every piece of evidence I could and every argument against the lordship and the reign of Jesus, and there's nothing that's compelling out there, period. Exclamation point. There is nothing that should take away your faith in this story being true, and there's a lot of reasons, many, many reasons, why we should put our faith in this story. Verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what Jesus is saying here is he he starts with comfort. Hey, it's going to be okay. I'm going to die. I'm going away, but don't worry. You're my bride. I love you. I'm preparing a place for you to join me in this thing that I'm doing. And then he tells them, hey, now you don't really get it, but you need to understand me and the Father, we're one. In a way that you can't understand, I am Yahweh. In this Trinitarian this, this three and one kind of smashed up truth that we can't understand. Jesus is one with the Father and is one with the Spirit. And then he says, okay, now that you understand that, now that you finally get what I'm talking about, and you're, you're really going to get it in a few days, but let's start with you kind of are starting to get it right now as I say it explicitly just to my disciples. You guys have a mission and a role to play in what's going to come next. This is about the mission to proclaim this good news. The work of the disciples and the preparation for their work after the resurrection. Jesus is telling them, you've got work to do and it's going to even look different and greater than the things that I've done. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And Jesus, so in our um, late uh, postmodern kind of world, We've stopped talking about and believing in, in miraculous sorts of things. But what Jesus is saying here is that you need to follow me in everything I did. And if you do, what's going to happen is my spirit is going to empower you to do greater things than I ever did. One of those things is that the Holy Spirit is going to come into our lives and multiply himself into the lives of the people around us. We, as the followers of Jesus, are going to be a part of a a movement that will literally span the globe over 2,000 years. And this spirit is going to be dispersed into our lives and then take root in our lives and then multiply into the people that that we share the gospel with. And so we get to be a part of this thing that Jesus could never have done before he died, which was to release his spirit's power and presence on the world. And also the spirit's going to do greater things because when we bring with us the Spirit's presence and the kingdom presence into every place that we go, we also bring with us the power of resurrection life. We pray, we lay our hands on people, and God does miraculous things in their lives. We invite them to put their faith in Christ, and their lives are transformed by the Holy Spirit's invitation in their lives. 
we're going to see over and over again throughout the life of the church that God does miracles time and time again. Even more than what Jesus did. And we're meant to literally follow the way of Jesus and do what he actually did, okay? And that's what we've, that's been the theme of this month is we're following the actual way of Jesus. Not, we're, we're not following the teachings of Jesus. We're doing the things that Jesus actually did. What did Jesus spend almost all of his time doing? You can, you can tell me back. Like, he did one thing almost all of his time in his ministry. What was it? No. Hang out, which was doing what? Making disciples. Jesus spent almost all of his time doing this one particular thing. Teaching these 12 guys how to walk in the way of Jesus. And he served and he did all those other things too. Yes, it was. And it was a trick question, kind of. Kind of. It, it's a trick question, but you, yeah, you were wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> the one thing that Jesus spent almost all of his time doing and the, the miracles were incidental to was he was showing people the way of the kingdom. And so if we want to follow in the way of Jesus, yes, we need to eat meals together and we need to serve, but ultimately the way of Jesus is made in one way, and that's making disciples. And that's why when Jesus gives his commissioning to his disciples, he doesn't say, go and do miraculous deeds. He doesn't say, go and feed the hungry. He doesn't say, go and serve people. He doesn't say, go make wine at weddings. He doesn't tell them particular things to do. He says, go and make disciples. And what you'll see is the Spirit will come upon you and things will be transformed because of it. Okay. Well, we're doing all right. My mom told me I had to go at least as long as I normally did so that the guys all felt how long the sermons were. So I'm going to go long for them. No, I'm, I'm almost done. Here we go. Uh, so what, is, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? This is the critical question that we ask every week. What are we supposed to do with this information? So let's take a moment. Let's kind of get into the mind of Christ it's your last teaching. It's your last time with your disciples. You're going to leave the house. You're going to go to the garden. You're going to pray, and that's it. That's the last time you're going to be able to engage with your disciples before the death. So what do you want them to really understand? What's the most vital thing before this crisis that's going to challenge everything that they believe? What does Jesus command them to do in this passage? We'll go back to verse 1. What's it start with? Believe in God, Yahweh. Believe also in me. Now we've talked about this. I, I know I hound on this too much. But belief is not saying I know it's true. Belief is literally leaning into, wholeheartedly doing a trust fall into the Father. That's the invitation that Jesus has in this passage. What does he want his disciples to really do? He, he really wants them to lean in and trust God and trust him. He doesn't want them, he doesn't say, hey, make sure to follow the Ten Commandments. Make sure to especially lean into those two greatest commandments. He, he doesn't make it about being an Israelite or their national identity. He doesn't make it about the temple ritual or the festival observance or Sabbath or even social justice. 
what does Jesus say at the very last thing with his disciples? He says, trust me. There's no one else out there that you can trust. There's nowhere else where you can lean in and they're going to hold you up. So trust in the Father and trust also in me. Jesus wants this one thing and one thing only from us, and it's the power source for the rest of the life of the Jesus follower. It's this. Let's see. Here we go. Okay. You may feel afraid. You may doubt. But the way to the Father is through Jesus. There's only one way. So trust in Jesus and you will see God. This may feel like really just normal church stuff and kind of trite and obvious to you. But it's simultaneously the most real and authentic way to approach God. And it's also the only reasonable way to exist on earth. Okay? So it's, it's both the only way we can approach God and also the only reasonable way to live on earth. What I'm saying there is there's no other way to have a relationship but then to trust somebody. That's the only way that you can lean in and, and really walk with someone in life is to put your faith that they will care for you. That's the basis of all relationship is the vulnerability that allows you to trust in them. You can't have it otherwise. And so what we see with the Father is that the only way that we can approach God is through this relationship of vulnerability and trust. And ultimately, there's no one who's worthy of your trust. There's nobody who has the big arms and the good heart and the loving presence and the power to hold you in their arms. And so what do we do in our lives every day? We hold on tight and we grip hard and we walk through life hoping that we can do it on our own and hoping that nobody's going to hurt us too bad and hoping to make it to the end intact. It's a terrible way to live. What God wants is this deep release. With our hands held high, we fall into him and say, there's nobody else who's worthy of my trust. There's nobody else that I can really lean in lean into like you so it's the only way to approach God and it's the only reasonable way to live because the rest of the ways that we live are full of torment they're full of anxiety they're full of depression they're full of us trying to make it on our own through the world this word belief or in, in Greek it's pistis is it's not an active thing and and so many of us because we are you know, we are Americans. We, we pride ourselves on being people of action and people who make things happen. We think that we need to grab hold of faith and hold on to it with our dear lives so that we can make it to the end. We have this need for control and power. But really, what we really need is to release our need for control our need for power. We need to recognize how stupid we are and how little we understand about who God is and what we're supposed to do with ourselves. We modestly accept that we know very, very little about the nature of God and humanity, and without God's gracious self-revelation in Jesus, where we see the power and the character of our Creator, we see this authority and understanding, we see this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness in Him that we've been longing to see. 
until we can release all of our need to control and make things happen, we can't receive what God wants for us. So Jesus wants this one thing. He wants us to look to him and only to him to find the way and the truth and the life that we're looking for. So whether you've already put your faith in Jesus by asking him for salvation and crying out to him for the life beyond, every day there's an invitation. Are you going to lean in and trust the Father? Are you going to lean into the way of Jesus? And faith looks like saying, hey, you know what? I'm pretty bad at life. Jesus is pretty good at life. So I'm going to do it Jesus' way instead of my way. That's what faith looks like. It's saying, I don't know. He does know. Therefore, I'm going to do what he says. It's just like with me and my kids. If they trust me, they will literally do what I say so that they don't die. That's an actual thing that happens every day. If they don't listen to me, they will die. It's the same thing with God the Father. We can either listen to him or we can die. We can do our own thing and go our own way and move towards destruction, or we can walk in the way of Jesus and receive the life and the gift that he has for us. We have lots of good reasons to put our faith in Christ. We have lots of good reasons to trust him. We have lots of good reasons to say, you know what, there's no other way. I love when when his disciples are like, where else are we going to go? No one else has the words of life. You have other places, like this isn't the only church where you're going to find the words of life. But Jesus is the only one where you're going to find the words of life. So I want to invite you this week. We're going to pray here in a moment. I'm going to invite the band to come up uh, to finish out our time. But I want, I want you to just, as you think about this teaching, what Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Receive it rather than grab hold of it. Open up your hands and fall into the arms of your Father, trusting him. And what you'll find is that as you trust him, as you see his spirit bring life to our bones and our bodies, as you see his spirit transform us from the inside out, it had almost nothing to do with you and your work and everything to do with trusting and leaning and falling into his arms. It's a weird thing, but God really wants us to not act, but to trust. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we want the life that Jesus shows us. We want to see the Father like your disciples did. We want to take this teaching and let it transform us and how we live. Lord God, I pray that as your disciples, as people who have thrown our lots in with Jesus, um, I pray that we would walk by faith, knowing that there's no other way to find the way and the truth and the life that leads us to the Father. I pray, God, that for those in this room who are saying, I'm not sure if I've ever trusted God and I've been white-knuckling it, holding on for dear life all this time, I, I pray that they can release, that they can let go and lift their arms high and abandon, knowing that only you bring the life that we need and that comes through the Spirit's power in our lives. 
Lord God, for each of us who are walking in your way, let each day and each moment be a constant work of releasing and trusting and listening for what you want us to do. Let each part of our life be shaped in the way of Jesus, just like he lived and just like he taught. In your holy name we pray. Amen. This content is meant to help you understand the Bible and what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. But we have seen that this can't happen in isolation. It only happens in community. We'd love to have you join us at Redemption Hill or a church local to you that helps you grow in following Jesus. Drop us an email if you have any questions for our teachers to info at redemptionboise.org.